Good morning, Northbridge. My name is Ray Brandon, the pastor for preaching here. Um, just a couple of things. Um, I want to thank uh, John Kramer and uh, Cody, uh, as well as the Hopkins, for such a wonderful Christmas Eve service. Um, it was like off of a Hallmark card. Um, it was snowing and hot chocolate and Christmas carols and uh, reading of scripture and being just being reminded uh, of the season that we're in and the wonderful uh, giving of, of Jesus that we celebrate at this time. So just thank you so much for a wonderful evening on, on Christmas Eve. Um, and as well, um, Cody mentioned that coming up is, um, is a seminar for, for parents, and this is a seminar that's going to uh, um, cover all the ages. So if you have little ones right to teenagers, um, we are actually, we're going to dive into this book. If you attend, uh, you'll get a copy of this book, Raising Passionate Followers of Jesus. And so we're gonna, that's the subject matter. We're going to be talking about that. What does that mean if you have an infant child or an 18 to 22-year-old? What, what does that mean uh, to raise a passionate follower of Jesus? You know, I've, I've been doing this a while. And um, whether you um, read Phil and Diane Comer's book, Raising Passionate um, Followers of Jesus, or you can read Elizabeth Elliot, um, or you can read uh, Growing Kids God's Way, or um, you can read Paul Tripp. Um, they all are going back to Scripture. And so if you've taken the parenting class or you've gone through one of Paul Tripp's curriculum, you're going to, um, you're going to find some things that are in common because the Bible says the same thing to parents over and over again. And oftentimes what we need in parenting is not necessarily learning something new, but encouragement to encourage one another, to be reminded of what the Bible says, um, and then to be encouraged. So we've, we've got a number of things that are, that are coming up, too. We've got the, uh, the, the seminar, Live Not By Lies. Um, that will be interesting as we have a philosopher, um, a pastor, a philosopher, uh, a scientist, and a high school student on our panel. And uh, just going through that book. And um, we'll lead a discussion through that of the panel, some interaction for those that um, attend, as well as small groups begin this next Sunday. So if you have not picked up your Gospel Project book, they are available. Be sure to, to get your Gospel Project book. And uh, we will be starting up the Be Still My Soul podcast as well um, that cover the daily devotions for your, your Bible study. All right, we are in Luke chapter 1, so if you would take your Bibles and just turn to Luke chapter 1, we'll read from the scriptures this morning. Um, it's, it's really difficult. I think it's one of the most difficult things to do um, an introduction of a book without actually preaching through the book, um, because you want to pack so many things into that introduction, because you're not going to be able to, to say those. So um, that has been my heart struggle um, over the last, this, this past week and, and this week, is what to include um, in this two-week introduction to the book of Luke. Because as you, um, as you work through the Gospel Project, most of the Gospel Project, over the next couple of months, you will be working through uh, the Gospel of, of Luke. So there's just so many things as I um, go through the, the Gospel, of, of Luke um, that I would love to talk about. Um, one of the things that, that I noticed um, in reading through the, the book of Luke is that the only time the disciples say, increase our faith, Lord, 
was directly after Jesus talked to them about forgiving one another. <laughs> That's interesting. Lord, increase our faith when we have to forgive one another. That, that could be a whole sermon um, right there. The, 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 um, the prophecy that, that is here right in the middle, right at the be very beginning um, that Luke is saying, this is something that's real. Um, but it's not just Old, Old Testament real. This is the prophecies brought into the present day. And so there's these prophecies that are fulfilled. Um, immediately, seven of them. And, and then the book opens up with all of these different oppositions to Jesus. So four, five, and six, um, there are eight ways that as Jesus begins his ministry, that he is, he is opposed. The Pharisees oppose him. His own disciples uh, oppose him. His, th there's there's um, uh, opposition of demons that, that are there um, in, in those chapters. And so it begins with this, this opposition. And, and then all of these different vignettes of people. Luke does not dwell on the large crowd ministry, but he focuses in on individual interactions. It's, the crowd ministry is there in Luke. Um, but the majority of these small vignettes, these little stories of eyewitnesses to Jesus, um, are this, this intimate and close relationship um, with who Jesus is. Um, the inclusion of those that are outside. And, and so it's this reversal. The kingdom is not what you think it is. Um, it's people that are included um, that normally would be be excluded or would be thought to be excluded. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing, amazing book. And the trajectory of the book, the trajectory of the entire book is not simply the resurrection, but how the resurrection lives out in the church, how the, the resurrection lives out in you, the power of the resurrection, how, how it comes alive in daily life. Luke is about this um, present-day experience. Um, that's, that's important to, to Luke, that, that God's people understand that the Word of God, that Jesus isn't just simply some heady idea. Um, it is not a category that's separate from your daily life. Um, it's not an event, like this morning, that, that is separate, but rather... Um, this walk with God, this religion, it's an experience with God. He emphasizes that experience. Because the resurrection is so very important to Luke, how we in our bodies experience God himself. As how do we experience God in a daily life is very important um, to, to Luke. And that's where we're going to begin this morning. We're going to look at, still in the first chapter. So uh, rather than go through many of that, or all of that, many different themes, um, I, I just want to look at one, one particular experience um, in the Gospel of, of Luke. And it really addresses an attitude. An attitude. Um, we would look at the theology of God's word. And some theologians have said there's been an assault over the last um, 50 to 100 years when it comes to theology. And in many ways, the church, the Orthodox church, the church that holds to God's word um, as the reliable word of truth um, has overcome that assault. 
But what we have not overcome is the attitude that we imbibe from our daily experience living in the culture that we live in. So, for instance, you were go you're going shopping, and your children say, hey, don't forget the cereal. And so you go to, I don't know, Save-A-Lot or Myers, um, maybe Aldi, not so much fitting this illustration, but probably still in, in some ways. But have you been in the cereal aisle lately? The cereal aisle starts in, it's somewhere in the middle. I don't do the, you know, the shopping, um, often Grace does that, but I've been in the cereal aisle. You know, usually if you have a product, it, it starts as part way in the aisle, right? It's just a section of the aisle. But the cereal aisle begins at the front, and it goes all the way to the back, right? And how many choices of cereal do you have? I mean, I think it's close to a thousand, uh, you know, all kinds of different breakfast cereals. And, and to be honest, I don't know who eats cereal. I don't, I don't. Okay, some of you do. Okay, there must be people who eat cereal. But, but if you just had to pick a cereal, like you, you just, you would spend all day in that aisle choosing what kind of flavor and, you know, fiber and sugar and I don't, you know, it's, just, it's, it's overwhelming. We live in a, in a culture of choice where choice um, is king and we have, we, we've bought into that. Um, there's a certain kind of consumer mentality that we have coupled with theology that we, that there's this attitude. So we might hold to the right things, but we have the wrong attitude in many ways. How do I know this? Well, I know this by the language that we use. Um, so when, when somebody will attend Northbridge for the first time and they're uh, a follower of Jesus, they will use this kind of wording, right? So um, they'll be saying, well, we moved into the neighborhood and we're church shopping. We're church shopping, right? You know it. You see how prevalent it is? We're, we're church shopping. And so just think about this, because I bet you you can answer this question correctly. So um, people that, that are church shopping, um, they will, let's say they have a family, and they have kids that can converse, not little ones. That, and so they, they come into church, and then they leave church, and they get in their car. And what is the conversation like? What, what, what are some of the questions that, that people have? You probably can think of them. Well, you know, what did you think about that, you know, the worship leader? How did you like the music? Did they sing songs that you knew? Um, what was the children's program like? Um, you know, you'll talk about the message. How did, how did you like that message? All of these kinds of things. And we have, we have tailored the faith to what? To what meets our perceived needs. And I would say it's actually, that's the wrong, those are all the wrong questions to ask, at least as primary questions. There's one question. I think we're okay. For those of you at home, that was uh, just a siren going by. Nobody's stopping in. <laughs> there's, there's one question that, that should be asked. 
Did that please God? That's it. Everything else is secondary. Did that please God? Did, did, what, did the experience we had, including our own participation in it, did it please God? That should be the question. Now, those other questions, it's not like they, they can't be asked or shouldn't be asked, but they're secondary or third or fourth to that primary question of does our worship please God? Now, oftentimes, that, that isn't even a consideration at all. You can see we can say the right things, we can hold to the, the right doctrines, but we can absolutely miss what God is doing through his word and through his church. One individual who didn't miss it is found here in the, the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1, let me read for you the story of Zechariah. We'll read... Um, the beginning of the chapter and then the end of the chapter. So follow along in your copy of God's word, beginning in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly, in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell on him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and, the, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah, and turn the hearers of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the Lord a prepared people. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his, the time of his service was ended, he went home. 
After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. And then turning to the end of the chapter in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors, and all the things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all heard them, um, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to re- remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness, in righteousness, before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray together. God, we ask that you would open more than just simply our eyes and our ears to your word this morning, but that you would transform the attitude of our heart towards you and towards your work so that we, like John, would serve you, being messengers of your salvation because of your tender mercy towards us. May we make known In word and deed, your mercy and your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to focus simply on the the prophecy of Zechariah. We read the whole thing so you would have the background and you would understand the story. And there's much to talk about in how this all happened. But I want to look at Zechariah's 
words in his prophecy that begin in verse 57. Why? Because they demonstrate what, ha- what is coming out of his heart. They demonstrate what is coming out of his heart. And it is an attitude of praise. Um, there are similarities. So we have, in, in this first chapter, um, we have the, the background music and we have two soloists, Mary and Zachariah, that each speak. Mary sings a song, Zachariah. You'll notice how even in your English Bible this changes. It's prophecy, um, but yet it is in word. It's similar to song. We have um, here two unique records by Luke of the words of Mary in her song, the words of Zechariah in his prophecy. And it's, it's in, in these solos, it's what is coming out of their heart, what was there in their heart that in this moment spills over. And for Zechariah, um, it is the praise of God. He is God-focused. There's, there are amazing circumstances that are, that are happening, both good and bad, right? There's an amazing thing that's happened here. A miracle has happened. They're having a child. But we notice that he, as soon as he's able to speak, what does he speak? Um, He speaks the word of God in praise of God. Why? Because that's the kind of man that he was. In fact, the book opens up with these two individuals, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they say that that these were spirit-saturated, scripture-saturated. These were upright individuals. The Bible doesn't say that they're holy. In other words, that they're holy, holy. In other words, that they have never sinned. For they wouldn't need the salvation that is promised them that they are so excited about. They're not perfect, but they are upright. They are righteous. Zechariah here, he praises God. He's a, he is in the temple. He is serving God. And here's what, we, what I want you to see is that when our souls are saturated with the word of God, we will respond to God in four ways. That's what we're going to look at this morning. When our souls are saturated with the word of God, we will respond to God in four ways. First, we will praise the Lord God of Israel. Notice what, what Zechariah does here. When, when God fulfills this prophecy that your, God does the impossible here. Your wife is going to have a baby. Now, this baby is a unique child. Um, this is going to be the forerunner, a prophet of Jesus. He's going to foretell and tell to all of Israel that this is the Messiah. What does he say in, in verse 68? He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Praise to the Lord God of, of Israel. His prophecy is a prophecy of praise. He's moved to give praise to the Lord God of Israel. Why does he refer here to the Lord God of Israel? Well, well, it's, it's clear that it was through Israel, through, through this nation of promise, that the promised one, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, would be brought into the world. That's Exactly what Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 9, where, when he said, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to belong to them the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. 
Amen. Zechariah blessed the Lord God of Israel because Israel was the conduit through which Jesus, the promised one, would, would be brought into the world and this very Jesus would bless the entire world. And so the prophecy of Zechariah is packed full of quotations and allusions to the Old Testament scripture. This, this is a man who is, um, he's, he's serving in the temple, but, but this is a man who's not just simply serving. This is a man who has stored up the word of God in himself so that when he was made mute because he, it says he, he, did he believe? No, he was made mute because the Bible says he didn't believe. And so he was mute and the baby was born eight days later. Then he is made well so that he can speak. So here this man who didn't believe, now the first thing that comes out of his mouth is praise to the God of Israel. And that praise, the very structure of the praise is the Old Testament scriptures. That's how he is forming this phrase. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Um, the words are very similar to the words found in books one, two, and four of the Psalms. So the Psalms are actually broken down into sets. When you have the book of Psalms, you actually have five sets of, of books there in, in the Psalms. And so Zechariah, um, says, praise be or blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Um, listen to Psalm 72. Um, it concludes with this blessing, um, as do these, these books of Psalms. Blessed be the Lord, the, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Psalm 72, 18 through 20. Psalm 72 and, and many of the Psalms record those words, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And so he begins with this phrase that would take his hearers back to certain places. The phrase, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, there's um, a similar phrase to it found in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 48, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10, Ezra 7, 27. There's many other places that we could go in the Old Testament and find this phrase repeated. Did you realize it was repeated so many times? Zechariah did. Many of his hearers did. That's why he uses this phrase, praise be the Lord God of Israel. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 48, in this passage, it identifies David, um, King David, um, and it identifies Solomon as the heir of David's throne. It says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has granted someone to sit on my throne in this day, my own eyes seeing it. You see the connection? Do you remember the history of Israel? What happened after Solomon? The kingdom was divided. At this moment in history when Zechariah says this, who's on the throne? No one. But what was the promise? That there would be one from the line of David on the throne forever. And what is Zechariah saying? He's saying there is the arrival of a greater son 
than David's own son. There's one coming who's going to sit on the throne. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He's pointing back. He's pointing back to all of these things. Um, He was out of the overflow of his heart, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He was bringing praise to God. He was reminding God's people that were gathered of the promises that he made. His prophecy here is like a a window into the Old Testament. Um, We see through it how Zechariah understood the Psalms and passages like 1 Kings and Chronicles and Ezra 7. We see as he saw Christ right there in the form of a, a promise now taking place in his day. He knew the prophecies concerning the Messiah. He knew that they were being fulfilled in his presence before his eyes. And the rest of the prophecy here will demonstrate even more so. We could say much more. First, we praise the Lord God of Israel. When our souls are saturated with scripture, when we speak, we praise God. Second, we praise God for his presence and his salvation. Notice they go together. God's salvation isn't something that for, Ze- for Zechariah here was something in the past. Had God saved his people in the past? Yes, he had saved. God was going to save his people in the future. That's true. But for Zechariah, it was the presence of God and his salvation that was present. Look at verse 68 there. It says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has what? Visited and redeemed his people. God is present. For Zechariah, the salvation was here in the present. Now he's using language, again, Old Testament language that comes from the Exodus. When Zechariah uses the words visited and he used the word redeemed, it should draw our minds to, to the Exodus, an Exodus event. And in fact, this Exodus event happens over and over again or references to the Exodus all through Luke. Um, Luke records the events of the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Where, where Jesus' appearance is changed. And he was with two other prophets, one of them being Moses. Why? Because um, Jesus, it was, Jesus was leading his people out. This was the exodus, the ultimate exodus. And, and Zechariah realizes that this is taking place and it's happening because God is what? He is present. He's there. In Exodus 41 Um, It's uh, 41, verse 31. This is after Moses first came to Egypt. After being called by God um, from the burning bush, the scripture tells us how the elders of Israel responded to Moses' word. Now, what was Moses worried about? They're not going to believe me. Did Zechariah believe the word of the angel? No, he didn't. But when when he is giving praise to God, he's calling back. And he's, he's drawing to the memory of his hearers a time when Israel did believe God. Listen to the words of Scripture from Exodus 4, verse 31. It says, they believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. 
God is a present God. He is active, and he's active in redemption, saving people, people who believe. Um, At the time of the Exodus, Moses visited the people, and Moses led them on this journey of redemption from Egyptian bondage. But Zechariah was not blessing God for what he did through Moses in the Exodus. Instead, he was blessing God for the marvelous thing that he was doing what? In his day. Zechariah understood that God was visiting his people again. And he was accomplishing a far greater act in redemption through Jesus, who was in Mary's womb, of whom John, his son, would be the forerunner. Zechariah blessed God. He praised God for visiting, being present. Emmanuel, God with us, present among his people. He understood that God was accomplishing something that was far greater than had ever been accomplished in redemption. Not through Moses, not through Elijah, but through Jesus. That a Messiah, the one promised, would redeem his people, not from Egypt, but from Satan's kingdom, from the bondage of sin, from destruction, the destruction of self, and ultimately from death itself. That's what Jesus was doing. The Exodus was simply a foretaste of something that was greater, a greater act of deliverance. Now, consider the words of Isaiah 59, verse 20, which says, And a redeemer will come from Zion to those in Jacob who will turn from their transgression, declares the Lord. God's people who were living under the old covenant, including Zechariah at this point, look forward to the arrival of the Redeemer. Here in Luke 1, 68, Zechariah declares, the Redeemer has come. He was in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so he gives thanks to God for visiting and redeeming his people. And so as Zechariah, he is, he is scripture saturated. And when his mouth is opened, what does he do? He gives praise to God. You see, the scripture is doing something in his life. He gives praise to God. It's, it's changing his attitude. It wasn't just simply a religion, but he was recognizing and he was actually seeing through the lens of scripture what God was doing. You see, that's what, that's what scripture saturation does in our lives. It, it changes our whole attitude because it gives us lenses to see the world around us. And he realized he didn't believe, but he looked back at a time when Israel did believe in what God had done. What what did God do? He visited and redeemed. And he gives praise. I'm tempted to apply this right now. Maybe you can get there yourself. I know the Spirit's working. But how does this affect us? Let's look at the third and the fourth thing before we answer that question. It's so tempting to go there right now. So if we see that this this man who was saturated with Scripture, he praises the Lord God of Israel. we, We praise 
God for his presence and salvation. This, this man who, had, who is saturated with scripture, when we are that way, we look at God with an attitude of praise. We say, does this please God? And we want to praise God. We want to give him glory. Um, we praise him because he is present and he is active in our day, working in, out salvation. And third, we praise God for providing salvation his way in his time. Now, for Zechariah, um, he didn't believe. Um, he didn't see. He didn't understand. But now he does. He understands fully. And sometimes we, we look at, even as we read through Scripture, and we say, God, why did it take so long for you to get to this point? Like, why couldn't we have a Bible that was like this? Like Genesis and then Luke. Zechariah realizes that God is sovereign, and he gives praise to him for providing salvation in his way and in his time. Look at verse 69. He says, Zechariah declares that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Who is Zechariah referring to? He's referring to King David, the greatest of all of Israel's kings. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 13, it says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his, of his kingdom forever. He realizes, Zechariah realizes that God made a promise, and he's working out that promise, that he worked it out in his way. He says that he has made a horn of, of salvation. Um, this, this horn of salvation has to do with might and, and strength. It's a power, it's a symbol of power and strength. And Zechariah gives praise to God for raising up this horn of salvation, this strength of salvation. He's thanking him for providing a strong king who would rescue his people and judge all the enemies of Israel. The horn of salvation reminds us of all the prophecies that pointed forward to the arrival of the strong and anointed king that would do this very thing, King Jesus. Consider the prayer of Hannah in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Um, she said, among other things, this, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, this was before there was ever even a king in Israel. It was Hannah's son who would anoint David as king. And here in her, in her prayer, she says that he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It's marvelous to consider the faith of these people, the faith of Hannah, the praise of Zechariah. Because his horn, the strength of Jesus, was being exalted for one thing, the glory of God. And by Jesus fulfilling what God had given to him by giving glory to God in what Jesus did in his life and death, we receive resurrection. 
forgiveness, salvation. Because Jesus went down and was exalted, you and I have hope. And here he says, this is God's way. We ought not to question God's way and God's timing, but we ought to trust in him. Why? Because of Jesus. We can see how God works. And here Zechariah is making this connection that across the ages from King David, the greatest of all of Israel's kings, now to the greatest of the greatest, Jesus, the Messiah. And he praises God for providing salvation. You did it your way and in your time, and now it has arrived. So we praise, when, when we recognize these things and we see these things together, we, we praise the Lord God of Israel. We praise him for his presence and his salvation. We praise him for f- providing salvation his way and in his time. Before we move on, let us consider one psalm that speaks of this. Psalm 132, verses 11 through 18, a psalm of ascent. It's a psalm of worship. The psalmist writes, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it as his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. God has accomplished this, and he will fulfill it completely. We praise God for providing salvation his way and in his time, and then finally, we praise God for keeping his promises. Look at verse 72. Zechariah blessed God for keeping the promises that he made to Abraham. In verse 72, we read, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Do you see how familiar Zechariah is with the Old Testament scriptures? Do you see how he clearly saw Christ in the Old Testament scriptures? How familiar he was with these pages and God's promises. Do you remember that God promised to bless Abraham, that he would make out of him a nation, that he would give him land, that through him all the world would be blessed? 
In Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 through 18, it says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sands on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This was the promise that God made to Abraham and it has echoed down through the corridors of history and it's now being amplified in the prophecy of Zechariah. He recognizes that this promise is fulfilled now in Jesus. He knows that it is this redeemer that will deliver them from the hands of their enemies, that they might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So we praise the Lord God of Israel when our souls are saturated with scripture. We praise the Lord God of Israel. We praise God for his presence and his salvation. We praise God for providing his salvation, his way and his time, and we praise God for keeping his promises. Let's draw this together. Let's draw this to a close this morning. Scripture saturation, obviously from this passage, leads to life transformation. It's the word of God in God's people being worked into their hearts through the power of the Spirit. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. It changes our lives. The word guides us. It gives direction. The word, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It is the word of God that needs to be in us if it is to change our attitude towards God so that we have an attitude of praise. If we wish to be blameless, says Psalm 119, verse 1. If we hope to be blessed in Psalm 119, verse 2. If we desire to live righteously in Psalm 119, 3. If we want a shame-free life, Psalm 119, verse 6. If we long for our lives to be marked by a spirit of thanksgiving, Psalm 119, verse 7. If we want to be marked by purity, Psalm 119, verse 9. If we long to prevent apostasy or wandering from the true faith, Psalm 119, verse 10, then we must treasure God's word in our hearts. The remedy to overcome sin and thought, word, and deed, the attitude changer in our lives is God's word. And so I, I want to challenge you as you read God's word um, to, 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 to read God's word in this way, that you, that you hold it, that you look at it, that you spend time in it, that, that you look and you see, there, is, there, is there a sin to avoid in this passage? Is there a promise to claim? Is there an example to follow? Is there a command to be obeyed? Is there new knowledge of God himself or myself or the world? that I learned today, and what difference can this make in my life? If you read scripture that way, your life will be transformed. That is a promise from God's word. Nothing else has the power to transform 
you and me and our lives except for the spirit-empowered word of God. And so we need to be in it. We need to, to read it. This kind of saturation in scripture leads what? Leads to a life of praise. A life of praise. It, it leads to ultimately people who serve. Right? Because if you are saturated with scripture to where you are praising God and we know what we love, we know what our life is saturated with because of what comes out of our mouth, what we talk about, right? What we love, we give assent to. It's on our heart, it's on our mind, it will be on our lips. And when, we, when our souls are saturated with scripture, we give praise to God, but it leads to then a life of service. That's what Zechariah said. According to Zechariah, um, it was that we might serve him, what, without fear, in holiness and righteousness all of our days. When the, when the, when the word of God is in someone, right, there is this persevering spirit to serve God, to serve and love people for the sake of God's glory. And that's exactly what John, John the Baptist, did his entire life. Luke records the last question of John the Baptist. Um, he was beheaded, and he sent word to Jesus. And what did he ask? Are, are you really the one of promise? If I'm going to go through with this, I, I need to know, are you really the one? And what did Jesus say to John? The lame walk. The blind see. Right? There's power in Jesus to transform lives. And so here in this prophecy, what I find incredibly enlightening is that here in, in this prophecy, that it says that the children will be turned to their fathers. That there's something that happens in churches and in families when God's people are saturated with his word. That lives are changed. That sins are forgiven. Why? Because there's power in Jesus there's power that comes through the word of God. And we know Jesus through the word of God. So I want to challenge you this morning. As you look at, as you look at God's word and you leave this place, How will you evaluate what has just happened? Will you evaluate it as to what pleased you and you found most helpful to you? Or will you judge it based on how it pleases God? Did what we do this morning 
give honor and praise to God. See, if we're saturated with the word of God, our whole life will be about praising him and serving him. And so as we begin this new year, may we learn from these two, Zechariah and Elizabeth, as they point to Jesus. So may your lives and may our church together point to Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, we recognize that as we look at this man, we recognize that Luke is not saying he's the one, but rather it is through his testimony. His testimony of faltering faith that we see plainly that you are exalted and lifted up. And that creates in our hearts this morning, creates in my heart this morning, a desire to praise you and serve you. So Lord, I pray over this next year as we begin together to study the book of Luke that it will be more than just a church activity that we place on our schedule. But rather, as we see through the entire book of Luke, that it will be an experience with you in which you bring your presence and your redemption into our lives, into our midst. We see you working. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would fulfill your promise in our midst, that we would see those that are, that are dead spiritually made alive, that we would live for you and you alone, that the word of God would course through our veins, that it would bring life to our limbs, to every area of our life. We ask that you would transform our church and our families and our lives so that you would receive praise as we see you fulfill your promise in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.